Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you all for coming early. I appreciate that. This is the last live of Let's Talk Bias. And today's guest is someone that I've grown to to call a friend. I, I met him at my book stop in LA. This was, this was in September. And uh, I really, really grew fascinated with the way his mind works. Now, Ken, he currently holds an MA in education with a specialization in education technology, as well as new media design and production. He has worked as an educator for over 20 years and most recently taught technology at the middle school level. As part of his active involvement within the educational technology community, Ken is an Apple distinguished educator and a Google certified innovator. So you're seeing that intersection. We're going to be talking equity, education, and tech. But he's also had the privilege to speak at many of the major conferences and events around the world, as well as schools. He's been able to speak at TEDx. And he's someone that, as you're going to find out, has a lot of opinions on the prompts that we had this week. And it is my great pleasure to bring on the great Ken Shelton. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Hey, you know what? I just thought of something. Yeah. What would it take for me to have you introduce me for all of my keynotes from now on? Especially you know with that. <laughs> I'll do it for free. We need <laughs> we need we need more. No, I I you know, again, you know, for context, I was doing the book tour stop for use the difference to make a difference. And uh, you know, I was just gathering people and can't hit me up. I think it was on Twitter or yep. Instagram. It might have been yeah. And he just told me about how he found me, and I was so humbled. And and uh, I was like, okay, we got we got to meet up. And every time we talk, we always have this thing where we're like, oh, we don't have enough time. <laughs> we don't we have enough do. time. That's right. That's right. So today we're going to create some time to amplify your voice. And the first thing I want to ask you is what I've been asking the guest on the Let's Talk Bias. How are you truly? So I'm doing okay. Um, and I'm glad you asked that question. It is a question we should be asking ourselves and those within our, our circles, uh, in our communities is how we're doing. Um, you know, nowadays we really need to be mindful of self-care and self-care is takes on a variety of different things, whether it's, um, disconnecting sometimes from the computer or, uh, you know, making sure we're resting, things like that. But, you know, um, for the most part doing okay. I mean, obviously we, uh, you turn on the news, there is yet another thing that is uh, potentially trauma-inducing, whether it's um, the latest uh, um, murder or uh, certain um, police officers not being arrested <laughs> yeah. uh, or the, the ramping up of, of uh, the numbers of uh, COVID-19. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're 
we're having to manage a lot of of things that we don't have control over and then obviously things that we do have control over but i appreciate you asking and i hope that that's the default for everyone watching that you know you ask you know yourself your family your friends you know pause for a moment how are you doing and don't accept the oh i'm doing fine because yeah you know yeah. a lot yeah, of cases there's a lot more layers to that you know I'm, I'm i've been notorious in the past for giving that response but then pushing others when i when i notice in them I'm like no you're not fine tell me more but then right. for myself i'd be like I'm good. But I've started to realize that it has to be a two-way street. Right, but, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, so I love that you started there. So now that gives the audience a context about your background. You're West Coast all day. You've been there. <laughs> Talk to me about the career path. What led you down to education, tech, and what did you notice in these fields that you feel like we can solve today? So it's interesting. So yeah, I grew up here in Los Angeles. Um, I'm LA through and through. I went to UCLA, go Bruins. And, um, you know, ultimately for me, what brought me into education, <clears throat> it wasn't my first career choice and it wasn't my initial path. You know, again, growing up in LA, you know, I looked at uh, two pathways. One was playing professional sports, which unfortunately I didn't make it. Um, and then the other was I, I did have a, a fairly long acting and modeling career, predominantly print work. But, but ultimately, I needed something that was going to be more sustainable. Uh, and then also more fulfilling. So I do come from a family of educators. One of the, my favorite uh, stories to share is the fact that um, I am not the first in my family to go to college, um, which is a common identifier for those of us that represent marginalized identities. Um, I'm not the first in my family to go to college. I'm not the second generation. I'm not the third generation. I'm actually the minimum the fourth. Wow. So my my yeah so my great grandparents for sure on my father's side of the family uh, were college educated landowners in rural Alabama. So let me repeat that: college educated landowners in rural Alabama, and that's my great grandparents. Okay. Yeah. So so for me and my father uh, worked in education here in California. He was a chief business officer for several county offices of education. So ultimately, education was going to be a pathway for me anyway. Um, and then ultimately what I had realized very early on in my career is one, I'm, I'm a, the equivalent of a unicorn. So uh, for my entire career, I was the only black male teacher at every school that I worked at. I was the only black male student in my entire master's degree and teacher prep program. And so for me going into the classroom, I had recognized very quickly the impact that my physical presence would have on my students because they weren't used to having a teacher like me. And it's one of the questions I love asking educators and really people in general is, you know, in the time during your entire schooling, when and when was the first time, if at all, you had a black male teacher? And so for me, it was my sophomore year in college. Uh, so I understand the yeah. So I understand the impact of that. And ultimately, as I worked my way into education more deeply, I recognized prior to my master's degree program, the uh, importance and the impact that technology has. And so that's where my stance on technology in relation to, you know, anti-bias, anti-racist and equity is that you have to have access to technology, which we're seeing now is a is a big deal um, because not everyone does have access to technology or the Internet. But ultimately, I look at technology as a mechanism for um, providing accessibility to um, different narratives outside of the standardized curriculum, uh, as well as being able to allow for more meaningful, uh, to quote you, more meaningful cross-cultural connections. <laughs> Technology dismantles any physical or geographical barriers, basically. You, you know, one of the things that has been has, uh, has been in the back of my head, and it's a project that I want to work on for the rest of my life, is to bridge the, the tech gap. You know, there are actually at least 2 billion people without technology. 
mm -hmm. you know, when we think about the global aspect of it and think about the barriers that that exists, that that comes with, you know, whether it's the, the infrastructure and how expensive it is and the politics of setting that up with cell companies that go into, you know, um, the continent of Africa or, or, or other continents that it goes there. And me as a Nigerian, understanding that, you know, Wi-Fi speeds can be different based on where you are. It, it, it becomes very daunting and frustrating to think about when you think about how many players are in there. But when you now think about the context of COVID and how a lot of teachers had to adapt and schools had to adapt all of a sudden, I, I, I like you think it needs to be a priority. I, at this point, you are doing a disservice to your students and your teachers if you don't have an infrastructure that's set up for people of all backgrounds. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's something that, that, you know, I've had the privilege of advising several ministries of education outside of the United States and then working with several state departments of education here in the U.S. And it, it really it really boils down to. The Internet needs to be designated as a utility. If Absolutely. you think about how valuable look, you and I are connected right now because of the Internet, your audience is connected because of the Internet. So how valuable is the internet beyond just simply, oh, I need to Google some things. People run businesses, people operate their businesses, people make connections within their businesses, people make connections to content or people. It mm -hmm. needs to be designated as a utility. And no matter where we are, there should be an, a significant investment in policy and in uh, finances yeah. to have that solid infrastructure that gives everyone, um, you know, what I would call appropriate access. Um, and so I'll give you a quick example. You know, one of the things that a lot of school districts did here in the U.S. back in March uh, when COVID-19 was fully in and they had to go to remote learning is when they knew that their students did not have access in the homes, they handed out hotspots. OK, yes. which I, I equate that to educational triage because they were ultimately trying to mitigate the foreseeable damages by kids not having access in the home. But the problem is, is that the hotspots have limited bandwidth capabilities and ultimately your experience and your connection is going to determine the outcomes that you have from being connected. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, again, investment versus expenditure. If you invest in the infrastructure, it's going to actualize itself in so many ways uh, and so many uh, returns on an investment between accessibility to learning, um, accessibility to startups, whether it for businesses, accessibility to customer clientele, accessibility to all of these things that, that need to be universally, um, accessible. And, and, you know, it's not only just tech. You, we're thinking about healthcare. We've we, we've gone through several of the institutions, but we think about healthcare, we think about education, think about, you know, entrepreneurship, all these things. If you don't start at a young age or if you don't start providing access, you said, you know, you said the right access, there is no way it's not going to be systemic, you know, and, and this week we went to several role playing situations where people I asked people questions about role playing, you know, people talk about black and black crime. And we talked about, you know, I want to keep my race pure and different things. This is how it all starts. Right. When when you're in politics uh, and I'm looking at the elections, my biggest frustration here, I'm not a citizen, but I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a legal resident, I guess. But as a different and I keep wanting to hear these things in, in the in the debates. I'm like, do you not understand that this starts? <laughs> These are the things you need to put money in, whether it's the right. healthcare and all these things, because that's how you're going to shape the world that you, you're, you're, you know, that you're building. And so why do you think there's so many institutions specifically here in America have politicized these things to be a left versus right thing as opposed to be just, frankly, utilities? 
So, you know, that's a good question. You know, there's a couple of things. First of all, in order to solve a problem, you have to name it for what it is. Mm. And what I notice is a lot of folks, they, they want to meander around, you know, some of the, what I would, I would say, enduring challenges that we have. Um, when it comes to the access, that should be, again, you align, align that with our basic human level needs, which are, we need power, we need, uh, you know, uh, water, all of those things. It, 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 is a, it, is, it is arguably within that realm. And, uh, and honestly, I'll share a specific example of that. Say I'm a family growing up in 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 rural part of of the United States or even anywhere else. How accessible is healthcare to me? If I don't live near a hospital or live near a doctor, maybe there's a situation where my problems can be solved, or at least I can have a deeper understanding of how to solve them by being able to make that connection. And I notice the increase in uh, the number of folks that are connecting remotely with doctors. Now here's my economic argument. How many more patients can a doctor see if they're scheduling time to remotely chat to say, here's that, you know, you have the, your patients fill out a, a, a questionnaire. So it gives you an idea of what, what the symptoms are. You connect, you discuss, you identify something. And then, of course, what do you do? They remotely submit your prescription. So you see, there's all of those things that, that I, I mean, I can go into literally almost every single industry exactly. that justifies a need for the, in, the investment in the infrastructure. But I would also say that it becomes politicized because there's a whole idea around, uh, you know, this limited financial resource that our varying levels of government have and where do they put it? And again, to me, that's why you got, you got to start looking at the nuance of language. So for your, your, your audience here, you know, I always recommend try to catch the nuance of language. A lot of cases, you know, the, in this context, it's an investment, not an expenditure. And you will see that used a lot, um, really in political circles. I mean, even like, for example, defund the police. People are like, oh my God, you're going to get rid of the police. You're going to get rid of, no, it means you need to look at the budget and you need to say, okay, we need to reduce the budget for, you know, our police force and then reinvest that into yeah. the community. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not, it's, it's why it's honestly, when I taught and even now it's why I really stress several areas that I think are missing in education. I think would benefit all of us. One is media literacy. Okay. Yeah. How is language used and how is it used to, again, and you, you cut, you touched on this in Instagram, uh, in your Instagram series. How does the nuance of language and the messaging from media impact or influence or validate the biases that we have? Yeah. And yeah. I have a whole series of exercises I take educators through where I, I put um, headlines uh, and I hide the pictures and I have them identify who do you think, what, what is the demographic of the individual that this headline is attributed to? And then they start to see that pattern. But if you start catching the nuance of language, uh, from from the uh, again from the media, uh, from the way things are presented, it will help you start to identify ways to dismantle uh, the efforts to maintain the status quo of things, which we cannot do. That you know we're seeing now the discrepancies and the disparities of not even just internet access, but economic access, social mobility, educational access. I mean, it's it's it is our stru the structures need to be um, need to be interrogated and dismantled. And then that's why it's very important for anyone who's just coming into the discussion to understand that this is beyond your individual frame of reference. Right. right. You might not be, quote unquote, racist, but you have to understand the systems as they are. And a lot of times when, when I'm, I'm talking, you, you talk about media literacy. I like to also champion a, a, a habit of reflective thinking and critical thinking, because yeah. a, lot, a lot of times we 
I keep saying we live in a conditioned world as opposed to an intentional world. Many of us just accept pieces of information without actually investigating why, you know, I, I, uh, Trevor Noah made a great point a couple of days ago. He was talking about how he called it copaganda, how cop shows, which, you know, their majority of propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you basically the way that cops get information from the from the uh, uh, you know I guess suspects are like, but you you know you're just so normalized and yeah. and then if you juxtapose that with a real life situation, what happens if that person is actually dead or shot or injured? Now, his point there was saying you know people are always talking about what can I do, what can I do? You are a writer in the writer room. You wrote that story, <laughs> so so that's a role that you can play, and, and that's the that's the same sort of thing. We just grow into this thing where because it seems like the system works, and we see successful people, and we have outliers like you know, like the successful black athletes, or successful you know, uh, black uh, politicians, whatever. Those outliers seem to act as a mirage of what is actually happening. Correct, and, and so. It then becomes a situation where if you're now faced in faced in front of this situation, people are too uncomfortable to want to act. And, and it's, it's I think it's a choice we have to make. That's this generation's biggest uh, quandary. Are you going to be willing to be uncomfortable to dismantle that system of oppression that has made you comfortable for so long? Correct. And in fact, there's another one I, I meant to mention. Here's one for you. This one's a good one for your audience. You know where else you need to have that awareness? Every time you do a Google search. Uh-huh. People think, here's one, people think, oh, it's an algorithm. I do a query and the algorithm gives me my results. The algorithm is based on a code. Code is written by an individual. What's the likelihood that individual has undergone ongoing anti-racist and anti-bias training? Then look at the hiring patterns of the tech companies, especially up in Silicon Valley. Do you see a cross-representation of diversity based on their hiring practices? Do you even see it in their officers? And so one of the things, exercises I, I do all the time with educators is I have them do a series of searches. And I'm like, and I want you to vet the results and look at what happens, especially using Google image uh, searches. And I'm like, that's an additional layer of that, that, that racist messaging or the racial hierarchy, me hierarchy messaging that yeah. occurs, even in something that we all do naturally, which is just simply a Google search. Yeah. That's that's crazy. That's crazy. So that's where I mentioned the media literacy. Now that's the other one. It's the information literacy. How are we vetting the information that we're consuming that, you know, people, you know, every time they're like, oh, I'll just Google it. I'll just Google it. And they're, they're not thinking in terms of the information I'm getting has has not been vetted through a racial hi racial hierarchical lens. Absolutely. That's so that's so true. And anyone listening, if you have any more questions, please feel free to add them here. I want to go through uh, the prompts of this week. And yep. the first prompt, because I, I know you, I saw you, I saw you active in the comments. So uh, yes. I know you have one in particular. I love them, by the way. <laughs> Thank you so much. The the first first prompt, um, hmm, I had to do with I the I don't have white privilege uh, conversation. So yeah, I, I've been going through this conversation with the audience to give them awareness and then move them to action. Now the difficult part of this conversation becomes when it's your your spouse, your husband, your family. And they're arguing from the point of view, well, I, you grew up with us. You knew how tough it was for us. What do you mean? It's work hard. It's meritocracy. Yeah. It's a good way to really explain that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So here's the thing with that. <clears throat> All of us benefit from privilege in some capacity. So I will share with you and the audience 
what benefit, what privileges I benefit from. So let's first of all, let's let's give a framework around the use of the word privilege. It's basically something that has been attainable to you that didn't require any significant amount of effort on your part. Okay. So here's where here are privileges that I benefit from. I'm male, mm -hmm. I'm cisgender, mm -hmm. I'm able-bodied, English is my first language, I'm college educated. Okay. All of those are privileges I benefit from. Yeah, I did go to school. I had to do the work and all those sorts of things. But ultimately, at face value, I'm afforded certain degrees of privilege, especially being a cisgender male uh, and able-bodied. So, you know, when you touched on this in some of your posts, acknowledging privileges that you benefit from does not make you a bad person. The key here is to acknowledge and accept the fact that I am afforded certain privileges that others are not. Once I am aware of those, I now can be more mindful of, compassionate and empathetic towards and ideally in a position to dismantle some of the privileges that someone else doesn't benefit from that ultimately will benefit us collectively. So if I put on my, you know, part of my master's degree is in design. So if I put on my design hat for a moment, one of the things that I've advised a lot of school district leaders to do is record their, um, you know, their messages to the community, post them on YouTube turn on closed captioning and have closed captioning available in, in, in more languages. It's not that hard to do. There's apps that will automatically do it. That way you're still, you're, you're, not, you're not adding to your work, but you're making work more accessible. It's, it's what I call accessibility by design. Um, it's the same reason why, you know, with my students, when I was in the classroom, I would always ask whenever they were designing uh, graphics, for example, is I would always ask, have you checked to see that your design is accessible to someone who's on the colorblindness spectrum? See, mm -hmm. even something as little as that, I mean, I can go through a whole bunch, yeah, but even wow. something as little as that to say, okay, my teacher now has me aware of there might be some folks that would not be able to see this beautiful design I put together. Me acknowledging that I can see it, but they can't helps me make a more informed and more accessible decision behind that. And so in the context of what you're sharing around, you know, the racial hierarchy and, and white privilege, look, the bottom line is you are afforded privileges if you are white and in this country. And quite frankly, anti-blackness, by the way, is not limited to the geographical borders of the United States. Everywhere. I've been a victim of it in more than a dozen different countries. Okay. Yeah. But but acknowledging that and being aware of it, you know, it's like it's almost like people want to internalize what well, makes me a bad person. No. Once you're aware of it and you name it, you now can then go then uh, do what I call is actively go against it. It doesn't take things away from you. And in fact, my argument around dismantling of the racial hierarchy is that it benefits society in general. Think yeah. about it. If you make more things accessible to more of society without these uh, systemic barriers that are in place, how much more human capital, intellectual capital are we now uh, making, um, giving opportunity to? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a zero sum game. And I love that point that, that you, you brought up there. And a lot of people feel like it's a, you're taking something away from me or I'm going to lose my culture. And, and the irony of that is that your culture isn't been lost. Your culture has been centered the whole time. Right. <laughs> so, so it, it's not, it's, it's not there. There's some questions I want to take on here. Uh, Brett has a question about something you said earlier. How do we, how do you make the case for that change in language? with people who have a visceral response to it by thinking it's just being political, uh, politically correct. So I guess this would be the people that are saying, well, you're taking away my, <laughs> my liberty to say something or just grow up. That's not how it was back in my day. So what would you 
say to that? Well, so one, the use of that phrase politically correct and politically incorrect is 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 a, another in the category of I call conversational terrorism, because basically what it's saying is I don't want to have dialogue with you because I'm I'm afraid I might say something that's bad. I mean, it, it's centering. I'm making it about me as opposed to, you know, again, what type of, you know, I. In, in some of the workshops I do, I, I take educators through um, a, a, an exercise where we build what I call our conversational library. And so what I do is I say, OK, what are all the words that we associate with constructive dialogue and what are the words we associate with destructive dialogue? So, for example, on a very simple level, conjunctions and is constructive, but is destructive. And so if you take the political veil that's generally put over meaningful dialogue away and say, okay, how can we acknowledge and accept that our experiences, opinions are going to be different? How do we discern the difference between fact and opinion? But more importantly, how can I get a window into your mind, your perspective, your experiences, which will help me have a, you know, open my aperture to, to get a better understanding of you. And I stress the fact that understanding doesn't require agreement. I'll give you an example. I have some friends that voted for our current president. And I said, okay, help me understand why. Um, because you are, they're, they're, they're lower middle class, um, you know, based on, on the way economic structure is set up. Um, and, and they're educated and stuff. And they shared with me some things that, as to why they voted for our current president that I was like, okay, I don't really agree with that, but I totally understand why that's your perspective. It makes total sense to me now. I've had uh, a friend of mine who's in Kentucky. I really wanted to have a conversation uh, with um, several families that are multi-generational coal farm, coal miners. And I'm like, I want to better understand this. It's, it's, it's exactly what you talk about. It's the cross-cultural connection. I've never been to a coal mine. I've ne I mean, I've seen pictures of coal mine. But I'm like, OK, and they're good friends with her. And I'm just like, I just want to understand. And, and they brought up some stuff that I'm like, OK, I understand what you're saying. It makes total sense to me, you know, around things like, you know, I'm going to die of starvation before I die of black lung disease. So that's why it's like I'm going to go into the mine and stuff. So I think the use of the word politically correct and politically incorrect, what we want to do is we want to provide a cultural framework around that to say, OK, am I aware of language that is destructive and dehumanizing? That there's no there's nothing on a political spectrum that should be associated with that. And how can I engage in dialogue that is not only going to help me be more informed and have a better understanding, but yeah. it's going to be a mutual uplifting of each other. Again, understanding does not require agreement. I, I love that. And then there are a lot of things that I, I will even I, that, that that I want to add to that. It, one is. We are in a culture that champions perfectionism as opposed to making mistakes. So whenever you seem as someone that made a mistake or you're 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 ashamed, it's like this fear of of showing incompetence, and it's actually overblown. I I would argue that the most the more vulnerable and more authentic you are, the more connected you are to someone. But many people are, are primed to think that way. And then a lot of times what I always do whenever I get those questions is, you know, because I will get them in comedy, for example. I'm a huge comedy fan. I voice and I want to do my own stand-up show. So so one of the things people I would get into arguments with people about it would be, hey, why can't I say these jokes? We used to say these things back in the day. And then I'd be like, why? First of all, I'll ask them, tell me, can you explain to me why you feel like it's very important to use this dehumanizing word to this specific group of people? I, I'm very, you know, I can be very sarcastic. And they'd be like, well, 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 I just thought that it meant this. And then I said, well, have you considered how the other person would feel? I just have them critically think through that. Because 
a lot of times people think that being politically correct is taking away the freedom of speech. But then I'm like, yeah, you can say what you want, but don't be afraid of the consequences. Yeah, hey, thank you. Comedians, you know, it's interesting. And you're right. Comedians, comedians are in a unique position Yeah. Uh, because you don't know where that line is until you push it to that line. And, you know, for me, I grew up with, I mean, Red Fox, Richard Pryor, George Carlin. I mean, they they would push it and sometimes go over. But again, with a comedian, my thing is there's two parts. One, I totally get it. You don't know where the line is until you push it until until you push it to that line. But if you are willing to go over that line, then you also have to be willing to accept the potential backlash you're going to get from it. Is there a fine line? Sure, there is. But, you know, I think, you know, in terms of all of that, I think what we want to do is recognize, first of all, you have to try to at least understand the difference between, um, you know, an artistic form of expression and then a, um, you know, how my ideology, if you will. Um, And so, you know, again, using comedy as an example, I mean, I I see, (laughs) look, I see a lot. Dave Chappelle is one of my favorites and he'll push it. You push it for sure. I love Dave too, but he definitely pushes it. <laughs> um, but you know, sometimes I, I guess the best the best way I can describe it is sometimes you have to be willing to push push it to that line to be the facilitator of the conversations that are likely to occur as a result of that. And humor is one of the best ways to do that um, because sometimes we laugh at things. Look, I remember um, Chris Rock was doing his whole. Um, uh, segment uh, many, many years ago where he was juxtaposing the difference between black folks and using the N-word. Yeah. And, uh, and, and people laughed and people laughed and people laughed. And you know, you know why he stopped doing that? No, why did he stop doing that? Because he started to recognize that many of the white folks in the audience were laughing a bit too hard at those jokes. Uh, and see, so he pushed it, he pushed it, he pushed it. And then it was like, okay, now I have an awareness that, you know what, this isn't necessarily the route that I want to take as a comedian, um, you know, going forward. So, you know. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I mean, I, I, it's a good question to ask around, you know, what do we do? And, and I will just add that usually the, the idea or the framework around what's politically correct and what's politically incorrect, unfortunately, is usually defined by the dominant culture. That's I have nothing to add. <laughs> by the way, we have some, this is the most questions we've gotten out of any of the lives. So I want to get through them before we go through. Yeah, them. no problem. Uh, I think a lot of 
time, people don't like to acknowledge the privilege because they feel like it takes away from their hard work, merit, effort. Americans love saying they did everything on their own. Yeah. That, by the way, is something you've touched on. But yeah, there is if you're looking at a cross-cultural context, there are a lot of collectivist-based countries, Nigeria being one of them, and a lot of individual, you know, countries, you know, the American dream, I did it by myself. And even with COVID, we're seeing now how people are not able to see the collective good versus their individual good, right? It's like, yeah. you're taking, you know, you're taking my mask. You, you forced yeah. me to wear a mask. And I'm like, I'm like, do you talk to your doctors this way? You know, next time you go to the hospital, I want you to tell that doctor to take off their mask. Just, just right. tell the doctor to take off their mask. So that, that inability to understand that bigger picture. But yes, I agree with you, Ali. There's uh, another one. <laughs> this is a good one because you know can I, can I just a quick comment on that so first of all meritocracy is a myth let's just i'm putting it out it's a myth okay the idea that people place a value i mean let, let me actually first meritocracy is a myth and what i what i say it, it is it is a it is is kinfolk to uh capitalism okay because remember the whole idea is i feel better about myself because I earned it on my own. Okay, so let, let, let's break that down for a second. Number one, everyone works hard. In fact, to me, what I would share with your audience, to me, it's a major red flag when someone, in a way of justifying their position, they include, I worked hard to get to where I am. Because I always ask and say, really, how many barriers were dismantled on your pathway there? How many benefits of doubt were you given to get there? You know, no one's questioning that you didn't put in the work. I would actually argue that, um, you know, driving, you know, when I drive, you know, north of from where I am here, I drive past a lot of farmland. You telling me that those people that are being underpaid aren't working hard to keep the cost of our fruits and vegetables where it is now. So to me, it's also a function of if you hear someone constantly saying how hard they work, I to me, to me, that's a red flag that they are trying to convince themselves that they actually earned the position that they're in and they didn't actually put in the work to do it. Yeah, we all work hard. And I don't even, here's the thing, I don't even associate hard work with, you know, volume, you know, because, you know, again, capitalism, you know, you see how even now when people, they're like, I put in nine, 10, 11, 12 hour days. That means that, you know what that tells me? That tells me that you probably aren't working efficiently because if I can accomplish in 30 minutes, what it takes you two hours to do, it doesn't mean I'm working any less hard. It just means I might be working better. And so this whole idea around that really just it, 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 it's how we it capitulates to the myth of meritocracy and maintains a capitalistic mindset that you need to be sleep deprived. If you're not putting in a 60, 70, 80 hour week, you're not working hard. So therefore, you don't deserve what you uh, have earned and such. And so, you know, I always say that, you know, it, um, the capitalistic mentality rewards mediocrity. And we associate accomplishment with title and then not scrutinize the individual who's been, in some cases, given the title. That's so there are so many things to point out there. I, I was going through some comments because that's, that's all I do sometimes because I'm trying to investigate other sides. And somebody brought up the point that is there a part of someone that is arguing against uh, dismantling the system that feels like if more people are there, their mediocrity will be revealed? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, 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 when you brought that up, that that was something that I, that I thought of. Yeah. And not, another thing I wanted to add is this idea. I think a lot of people. You're right. You know, you drive past the farm and you see people working hard. But I think it really comes down to the type of work. What this COVID revealed was that essential workers are not being treated like essential members of society. No. And so 
in your scenario, the, the farmer would be in a sense to work without the farmer right now in COVID situation, we won't be able to have anything that we have. And other people in different offices can, you know, ultimately do what they want. But why do we have a system that doesn't reward, <laughs> you know, that essential worker who right now are the ones most likely to be uh, exposed to COVID and yet underpaid by the system and also given limited access to healthcare while their kids might not have internet or uh, access to the school. And now you now understanding how this system is perpetuating something that you were claiming meritocracy is rewarding you for. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't have to go. It's just, I just like, this is. It's uh, capitalism. Remember, I, I say capitalism is the great Ponzi scheme of society. You have so you, to have a hierarchy. Anti-cap, you don't believe in any capitalism at all. You're like, so, so what I do, so I'm glad you're asking that. So what I do believe in is a system of rewards that are truly based on the work that you put in. But the problem is, is that there are too many barriers in place to where the, the majority, again, it's a Ponzi scheme. So if you imagine a pyramid, those right. at the top control the levers and have all the power. And so in order to stay at the top, they've got to continue to exploit those that are beneath them. Okay. And so, and that's our societal, that's our societal structure. The problem is, is that capitalism actualizes itself in so many different ways. So for example, you look at, you know, obviously my primary lens is education. Capitalism rears its ugly head in education when you think in terms of how students are class ranked. Yes. Who has access to things like here's one for your audience. Here's a good one. You want to know how capitalism works and want to talk about the um, how uh, white supremacy manifests itself uh, in, in the way our cities are structured. Just do a Google search for SAT and ACT prep centers or GRE prep centers and watch what zip codes they appear in and which ones they don't. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I think, you know, we we don't as long as there are mechanisms that create barriers to access and opportunity we as a society will never actualize our full potential. And, and, and yes, there are different pathways that we would take. This is also why, which you and I hadn't talked about, this is also why in education, I'm such a staunch advocate for career and technical education. I don't believe that every child who goes to high school by the time they turn 18 should be told your only option is to go to college. I agree with that. I, at all. You know, I mean, I had students that had interests in the culinary arts. I, had, I have and one of my former students is uh, he has his own um, um, film and uh, video production company here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately when you get to the point of 18, what do you want to pursue and what options do you have to do just that? That's when you can get into the whole thing of, of dismantling or re I, I would say reconstructing a capitalistic society. Yes. For those that do things that are of a higher value and they have truly put in the work to get there. Sure. I don't have a problem with them being uh, rewarded based on the fruits of their labor, but if it meant that they had to step on other people or deny others access to get to that point, that's where I have a problem with it. No, I love that distinction by the way, because I've noticed this, we're talking about language earlier and you know, I'm in the city of AOC at Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and I see how much hate she gets because of the word socialist, right? So some people shut up after certain words and you know, and, and that's why I wanted you to explain that because I don't think many people actually listen because a lot of times people hear socialists and they think Cuba, no, no career, no, this. And, and so, and, and, and it's not about, it's about understanding the, the spectrum. And you just explained that. Um, Brett says the defensiveness is frustrating to work through. Uh, and then Charlene goes, oh my gosh, Brett, yes, you know, pride is unbelievable and digging in the hills is, you know, is not having compassion. And Brett, 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 I like Brett. Brett. 
Thank you, Brad. Participated. Yes, conversation. <laughs> conversational terrorism is a great way to describe it. Just the earlier point you were saying. Um, and yes, it's centering. Definitely, Charlene. Okay, they are having a conversation amongst themselves. All right. So there's a. Uh, yeah, Brett says I often ask people to tell me who it is they want the right to be able to offend. Wow, that's a great, great comeback yeah. when you're when someone is coming down. Who do you want to offend today? Uh, people love to bring up freedom of speech to say whatever they want, but they forget that it works both ways. You get yeah. called. All these made several good comments that I've glanced over uh, as far as some of my comments go. Uh, yeah. Conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. This is good. I love this. And then I think it goes yeah, back to the one. Yeah. 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 Some people have a leg up and very, wow. This is good. I'm like, you're dropping. You're, this, this, this is. Yeah, you are. Thank you for your comments. I appreciate these comments. This is good. See, this is this is what I call uh, intellectually stimulating uh, engagement and dialogue here because, you know, we're all sharing thoughts. And, um, yeah. and some of the comments, there was one comment that I know um, Anna put Anna's comment. Uh, do you really believe everyone works hard? I know a lot of people, they don't have the ambition to work hard. Oh, I know, and and, and Anna's, Anna's right on that. You know, I mean, in some cases, I, I, I think for that, we want to be careful of this, Anna. We want to be careful of how we define hard work, for one. And and I agree with Anna 100%. Some of us have ambitions that are, um, they're, they're just different. And, you know, in some cases, it requires more time, energy, and unfortunately money to reach something that we are ambitious towards versus others. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, again, I think ultimately working hard is subjective. Um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I mean, I was raised by a single dad. My dad worked hard, <laughs> you know, but, you know, some people would say, well, no, he didn't have to do any one of a list of things. I think ultimately the whole idea around ambition and the, the use of the word pride and what we accomplish has to be more of an internalized recognition that when I look in the mirror, am I happy with what I've been able to do? Was I provided with the access and opportunity to do it? And is there anything more that I want to be ambitious towards or pursue? And if so, what barriers exist that I myself can overcome and what barriers exist that society has put in, in, in front of me? Yeah, I definitely think it's a nuanced conversation because, yeah, I'm sure we know some people that could probably benefit from <laughs> working a little harder, but uh, right. I, I know what you're talking about with the larger context. I want to continue down the, the road of the prompts. The big one that a lot of people will have a hard time defending is black on black crime. Yeah. What about the what about is him? You know, you talk about black folks dying and they're like, no, nah, y'all like to kill yourself anyway. What about the black? What about Chicago? No, what about Chicago? Tell me about Chicago. You know, I, I get I get Only that. LA when I grew up. Yeah. yeah. So what do you say to, to some so, of the Again, what about ism is another form of conversational terrorism. Um, it's actually gaslighting. You know, here, here's, the, here's the thing about that. So I'm going to break it down as far as the use of that. And, and there's a couple of other things that you, you shared in regards to, um, you know, the prompts, especially there were a couple that you had shared about education that I, if we have the time, I definitely want to share with your audience here. So let's take the colorism and the cultural identity out of that equation. And let's just say, you know, when you have crime committed against uh, another crime committed, committed where you share, share some, some sort of similar cultural identity. What people have to understand and recognize is that, first of all, go to the root nature of crimes being committed. If you think about it, how, are, how and why are most crimes up to a certain level committed? 
Is it because of a lack of access to resources? Is it because of a desire to do something that is um, inflicting pain on someone else? And then now when you go to the reference of this whataboutism component, there are several things that I always share with folks. I go, one, if you study history, and I have a degree in history, it's one of two degrees I have from college, but if you study history and you look at situations where you take a group of people who maybe share some sort of similar cultural identity, confine them geographically to a small area, deny them access to a meaningful education, deny them access to social mobility, which is a direct correlation between social mobility and economic access, what do you think is going to happen when they have to compete for the same volume of limited resources in the first place? And so if you think about, if you look at the history of this country, the first, um, my first response whenever I hear that is always, I want you to do a Google, there's this thing called Google, I want you to do a Google search, and I want you to look up the five points in New York, and I want you to look at who was in the five points in New York, and what happened, and how much violence there was, and then after you've done your homework, go ahead and watch the movie Gangs of New York. And so then now take that lens, which was, you know, uh, around predominantly immigrants and Americans, but, but it was, again, groups that were confined to a small space, okay, and then now if you take that and you put the layer uh, of this of the United States around the history of housing, redlining, blockbusting, housing prices, housing affordability, and how you, I as an educator can identify the performance of a school based on the zip code before I ever even look at any of the other big data garbage, which I do say big data is garbage. And if you want, I can share with everyone on here why I think it's garbage um, and, and, and how it's used then you can look at the fact that for me growing up here in Los Angeles, you know, um, I grew up during a peak of gang violence. So by the time I was 16, there was a, there was a statistic out that one in three black men growing up here in Los Angeles County were going to be dead or incarcerated by the time they were 18. If you look at the history of Los Angeles, and I even have family history around this, and you look at redlining, there's a reason why the gangs were concentrated in highly black areas where then you, it justifies the, the, the increase in police budgets, which then justifies more policing and more police stations. But then now you don't have a high quality education. You don't have access, economic, uh, social mobility. Then now you, you, you put in drugs in the community. And then what do you expect is going to happen? And see, and the thing is, is there's a long history of redlining in many of our major urban centers. Uh, my, my paternal grandparents were the first black family to buy a home in Culver City because Culver City was redlined. And, it, and here's the thing, Tyler, it didn't matter that my grandfather was a decorated World War II veteran. He was a colonel in the Air Force. He was in the military when it was segregated, then became integrated. And by the way, he was a Tuskegee Airman. And so none of that mattered when it came to them buying a home. They were one of the first black families to buy a home in Culver City, which is where I grew up. So the whole idea of this whataboutism, it really takes a very large and complex social structure and history and says, okay, well, I want to deny what you're saying. So my best way to do it is, again, conversational terrorism. What about ism? There's, there's just as much, there's more white on white crime than there is black on black crime, just based on pure numbers. Yeah. And to me, you know, again, and, and I've had this conversation, again, constructive dialogue with a number of my white friends where I'm like, you all have no idea how often talk about safety in a community, community empowerment, community growth occurs in black communities. And I asked him, when's the last time you've been to a black barbecue? When's the last time you've been to a black church? When's the last time you've been to a barbershop in a black community? Those conversations were going on even when I was growing up. 
We want all of our communities to be safe. We want all of our kids to be safe. So this whole idea of what aboutism, it really, again, it's conversational terrorism because it doesn't go into the fact of what is the very root nature of, of many of the crimes that are committed in the first place. And then add to that the 13th Amendment, add to that mass incarceration, add to that the new Jim Crow, add to that the school to prison pipeline. And you have this very complex social structure that's in place that is, is self-perpetuating in the use of crime numbers for justification of increased police budgets, the use of crime numbers for increase uh, in a police presence on, on schools, the increase of the lack of access and opportunity for students, the increase in the numbers of the school to prison pipeline, and all those things. It's a direct correlation with all that stuff. There is, there is. And, and, and I'm glad you brought it that way because it is a distraction from the bigger picture. You know, when anyone reacts that way and comes up with a, what, a, what about black and black crime, it means that they're not willing to solve the problem or even to look at the root of it. Because if that's your response, then first of all, it's either you have a, you don't understand what the root of the problem is, or you understand and you want to distract from that. Because I'm telling you again, if you if if many people are committed to understanding how to solve the problem or to actually solve the problem, it is going to mean a loss of privilege for so many people and a loss of status or whatever or comfort level that they are not willing to give up. And and that's the deeper thing there. And it is. But here's the thing. Here's one. Here's one for you in the audience here. It actually doesn't take away any of the privileges you have. Think about it. When you have, if you think in terms of school, for example, school to me is, first of all, school is a game. Okay. Let's be real. It's a game. And those that have money and access are more effective or more effectively able to play that game. I mean, I'll, I'll share with you and your audience here. You know, when I was in high school, I was the only black male student for all four years in all of my AP and honors level classes in high school. Yet my high school was 20% black. Okay. Part of the reason why I did that and took those classes was because my dad was like, I know how to play the game and I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. And of course, my dad, you know, when dad tells you, you don't you don't question it. This is what you do. Remember, military family plus that. So <laughs> I'm, my, my point, though, is more a function of think about every every June, every man June, how many students were denied access, marginalized or, or uh, forgotten, not seen. You know, it's a, my, one of my favorite words. You know, uh, uh, you're, you're from Nigeria. You know, I, 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 I never shared this with you, but I'm going to share it with you and you're honestly here. I actually studied Zulu in college for three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. See, I, don't, I don't know Zulu. You know South Africa. Oh, I, I, I don't remember a lot, but, but, but I mean, you know, and so the reason, and so here's the reason why I mentioned Zulu, because Salabona is the formalized greeting in Zulu, which it, 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 it really doesn't mean hello. It means I see you. And then the response you give is, uh, if Sawabona is an individual and Sani Ponani is a group. Yes. And you respond by saying Gikona, which essentially translated means, I am here because of you. And so when I, I'm saying that, because how many students go through our educational system, they are not seen and they are not heard. And so that if they are not seen and not heard, then they, they essentially internalize a lower value of themselves and a lower value of what they can contribute to society. So when you think in terms of privilege, Think of how much we lose out on as a society and a community when every year you have students that have been funneled down to this percentage gets to go to college and the rest, you're on your own. That's And so to me, again, and I shared this with you in a previous conversation, so with your audience, rising tide lifts all boats. If we're, if we're helping students actualize their potential, we all benefit from it. That's the thing. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, one last comment, and then we'll go to what, what was shared with Anna here. 
again, the beauty of studying language this is why I love all your work, Tayo. I, because I, the cross cultural connection. I, so let me be clear on some. I have been, and you want to know another privilege I, I've been afforded. Yes. Because of because of my contributions to education, because of my work in educational technology, I had the privilege, and I stress it's a privilege, I've been to more than 50 countries. And one of the things that I love doing when I go to a country is if the tourists go left, I go right. I don't want the tourist experience. I want to immerse myself. And you mentioned failure. I try to study as much language as I possibly can. I want to be able to benefit from you know, you have this in your book, you know, when I go into a space of which I am not part of the dominant culture, if you will, I want to be able to contribute to and learn from that particular environment. And so the reason why I share that is that part of my study of Zulu, I also studied South African history quite extensively. And, you know, want to know one of the main reasons why when Mandela and de Klerk met for one of the final times and they were able to dismantle apartheid without any mass internal war, they recognized that, that the sanctions were hurting everybody. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. When we reach a critical mass as a society here in America and really in many other countries where there is a, a, a racial hierarchy, especially yeah. when you understand that we all hurt are hurting from that. Some of us disproportionately more than others. That's when you'll start to see uh, the systems be dismantled and changed. Absolutely. Well, every, everybody that knows me knows Mandela is my biggest inspiration. And, and I just want to touch something before we get to Anna's question. So the, the privilege that I meant that would be lost is, and this is the thing that was communicated towards me is, is a status symbol. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to have my best friend anymore, or I'm going to lose this investment or this, you know, this super PAC is not going to support me. And, you know, to me, yes, I know the way I grew up, I'm very, well, I'm just going to choose the right thing to do anyway. But to right. many people, when you lose that sort of funding, you know, it means like a loss to the country club and then the, the school that your schools where your kids were going to go to and then all that. And then, you know, my response is, well, why, why do you want to be with you don't want to be French or racist anyway? <laughs> like, no, but it affords me. So that's what I was referring to with that. So that's often how people think about that. And when it, when it, when it comes to that comfort level, which, again, I would stress is it really important in the big picture? But um, Anna has a, a response to you. This goes back to something you were saying earlier. Then I'm going to give you the floor to uh, talk to us about where we can connect with you and your patron and everything you have. So, so you want me to respond to Anna's comment here? Yeah. So, I'm going to read it for the podcasters so the podcasters can't see this. So she says, just looking at my students, I teach and study abroad program. And we have many students who come to Spain to have parties and then they spend time at the beach and others who study hard. So this is in response to the everybody works hard right. comment made earlier. So, yeah, so I mean, I mean, she's right. That's that's look, it's a privilege. You know, I, I keep seeing the uh, now it's being talked about with the um, the gap year and the study abroad, you know, the gap year. I'm going to take a year off before I go to college. That is a byproduct of privilege because not everyone can do that. Not everyone mm -hmm. has the means to do that. Uh, I, I think in terms of like Anna's comment there, you know, the reality is, yeah, some are going to have access to uh, to be able to study abroad and go spend time at the beaches while others are going to uh, not be able to do that. You know, to me, it's um, what do we place a higher value on and then what do we celebrate? To me, you know, if there's a balance between going to the beach and studying hard, great. But, 
you know, I, I liken it to the, okay. So here's the analogy I used to share with my students because my students at my last school, um, it was a Tata one school. So for your audience that doesn't know a Tata one school means that a certain minimum percentage of students qualify for free or reduced lunch, which means that their household income is below a federally mandated threshold. And that means that that school is afforded additional financial resources that, that they must use to help, uh, um, decrease the gap of accessibility between the students that, um, don't qualify for free and reduced lunch and the students that do. And I used to always tell my students this, what you need to understand about the game or quite frankly, the race of life is this. Some people are able to run it faster. Some people are able to get a head start. For you, you want to keep your eye on the finish line to say, no matter what, if I cross the finish line, then I'm still in a position to do actualized things that I want to do more. It doesn't matter when you cross the finish line. What matters is if you do cross the finish line. And I used to say that to many of my students who were English wasn't their first language. And I used to say, look, you know what? Some of your classmates, yeah, they're going to be able to get the work done in an hour. But if it takes you two hours, you know what? Guess what? You still got it done. And, and you don't want to place a higher value on someone who did it, you know, in a fraction of the time, because ultimately the most important person to hold accountable is yourself. And I only say that in a sense of, of self-empowerment, because we still have to be mindful of the fact that there are systemic barriers in place that create those disparities in the first place. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. Well, where can we find you? What are you up to? What is your blog? What is your patron? I'll put that in the. Okay, in the I appreciate that. And I, I mean, I, I, I want to say I cannot thank you enough for this time. Um, we need more. <laughs> I know. I do it less than an hour. So. I think the audience is tuned in with your comments and your questions. We need to have dialogue. We need to dialogue is important. Dialogue helps all of us, all of it. So I can be found. Uh, my website is kennethshelton.net. Um, I'm on Twitter is K underscore Shelton. Instagram is K Shelton. Um, I do have a blog. I'm going to do a few other things in regards to my Instagram feed with an IGTV series. I'll do some stuff on YouTube. I do put content out, but I'm going to be more uh, diligent about putting more out and just sharing more of things that hopefully will be helpful um, to not just educators, but to all of us. Absolutely. So I, I'm going to grab this. And by the way, all those listening to the podcast is going to be in the notes and when it when it actually goes on YouTube, I'm going to go back and edit it, and we'll make sure we do that. And I'll continue to share Ken's stuff on Instagram. There are some last comments here that I, I want to okay give, give you some eyes on. So Ollie says these people sympathize with racists or privileged party are going to lose this or that, but can't have the same feelings with people who actually heard it. Okay, so that's basic human rights. He's talking about you know how can people have how can you sympathize with people that are hurting people that actually you know need to want to. Honestly, that comment right there is precisely why I, I stress the fact that empathy has its limits. Yeah, and but you, you're, you're you're full of fire today. Exactly, I, that that is a selective empathy. And then Karen says, "Here's a what aboutism." I was speaking about racism with my neighbor, and she said, "What about all the blacks that have had nice lives? There's plenty of them." She also asked that I place my BLM sign far from where her property line begins. I'm not sure how to help educate her, but she has become my challenge without arguing. <laughs> yes. Okay. So let me really briefly, I'm going to, I want to share some, a uh, couple of things for Karen there. So number one, that perpetuates what's called black exceptionality. Okay. Yes. Um, and that's the argument that you hear of like, well, we're post-racial because uh, Obama was elected president. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, you have to recognize again, black exceptionality that, that the outliers are not representational of, of the majority. Um, and you know, with your neighbor, look, you want to, that's a, that's an assessment that I would say you would have to make as far as, is it worth my emotional capital to engage in constructive dialogue, to help broaden the perspective of this person? If it is not, then don't do it. Not everyone is worth the effort. I would say a lot of people are, but you have to make that assessment yourself because ultimately if you have to expend so much emotional capital and you're not likely to make progress, then it's then then we need to focus on those that we do. And that just goes in the whole idea around group dynamics. You know, you there's always going to be that percentage that are going to dig their heels in and you know what, I'm taking my ball and going home. Yeah. Kind of mentality. We want to look at those that are leading the charge and those that are like, okay, you know, and it's my favorite. Honestly, it's one of my favorite Maya Angelou quotes. Do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. We want those that are like, I know I can do better and help me. And that's why the work I do with education, educators, especially educational leadership in groups. I'm like, we're going to run the race together. But here's the thing. The only way we win is if we cross the finish line together. So we're going to hold hands and, and, and no matter what, we're going at the same pace and we're going to make sure everyone's needs are met so that when we cross that finish line, we know it was based on a group effort. And, uh, you know, it's an old, um, can't remember if it's a Maasai saying or a Swahili saying, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. This, we need to go together. We need to go together. Well, thank you, Ken, so much. There's already so much love. Ollie says, thank you, Ken. Brett loves you see you <laughs> Brett loves you and get you know and then um so there's uh Charlene and I know Anna said the same thing I want to thank you so much for coming on the show this has been uh, an education resource this is gonna be one of many so I got so, love for you. you know that so I appreciate it very much so I got love for you but uh, ladies and gentlemen and gender non-binary individuals till next time use your difference to make a difference Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.